All right, gave away the topic for this morning. So we've been doing a series, it's a five-week series, and this is week five of the series, a series called What's Up With Christians? Because if you have any friends that aren't Christian, they've probably at some point asked you, what's up with Christians and this whole science, evolution, creation thing? Or what's up with Christians believing in this loving God, even though there's so much suffering in the world? And we've covered that. But one of the most interesting ones, one of the ones that I've been asked often by my friends that aren't Christians, what's up with Christians and sex? And so this morning, we're going to dig into answering that a little bit. In this series, partially it's saying, hey, if, if you're new to Christianity or you're curious about Christianity, here's a great explanation. It's also a series for, hey, if you have friends asking you these questions, here's some ideas of how to talk about it. Here's how, some ideas of how to explain what maybe you've known for years, but you don't actually know how to describe. And also, it's a series that I think that every single one of these topics, they challenge us to grow ourselves, where God says there's always space to grow. There's always space to be transformed. One of the values of our church is transformation. And the question is that is, how am I different than I was last year? How Am I living my life a little bit more like God created me to live as a human this year than last year? So this morning we're going to be looking at sex. And the title of the sermon is Sex and Saws, hence a saw here on stage. Um, and if that's not, if you're not already a little curious about what we're going to talk about, a little bit interested in this, I want to give you two, two ideas. The first is that Frequently, when people do surveys of people and they kind of compare Christians and non-Christian couples, Christian couples rate their sexual satisfaction as higher than non-Christian couples. So it seems like Christians are probably getting something right. There must be something that's up with Christians and sex that is working. But on the other hand, when we look at it, when they did a study of over 20,000 Christian couples, men regularly orgasmed 90% of the time, and women reported they orgasmed regularly only 48% of the time. That's a 42% difference. And it's kind of a blunt way to put it, but let's be blunt. That's a huge difference, and that's not typically a good sign. So this morning, that's the like, most direct I'm going to get. But this morning, we're going to start to see what God actually has to say about this. And maybe if he has some wisdom, some insight for us. So I want you to think back with me. I want you to think back to when you were one of the kids downstairs and you were an innocent kid and you didn't know anything about this. This was the last thing on your mind. And at some point, you probably were getting close to being a teenager. And you started to realize that you felt things and you're noticing people in a different way and you you didn't you didn't really know what it was but you were like there's something that I think would feel really good and would be really fulfilling and I want it and it's a weird stage in life and then eventually you start to connect the dots and you go oh this is this is what people mean when they talk about sex you start to identify that what you're feeling is a desire for sex. And depending on what culture you grew up on, grow, grew up in, you probably heard different things about it. Because every culture kind of has a different set of expectations around sexuality. 
And if you grew up in like a really Christian culture like I did, you probably heard a few things about it. The first thing you heard was, don't talk about it, don't think about it. Pretend it doesn't exist until you're married. And you kind of go, okay, this is a really terrible thing, except it's a, except, okay, and then you get married. And kind of the message that you hear in Christian culture when you get married often is do it regularly with your spouse of the opposite gender to kind of glue your relationship together, make kids, and sometimes even you'll kind of hear to make sure that your spouse stays faithful. And so I grew up in like Christian culture and I knew, I heard other perspectives, but I kind of grew up in Christian culture. And so I and many of my friends kind of followed that. And so we lived our lives looking forward to getting married. We were like, hey, I can't wait till someday I get married and it'll be a good thing. But right now I've got to like try to just pretend it doesn't even exist. And we heard different messages. Like you go to youth group, you hear youth pastors talk about it a lot. You hear things that your parents say. You see how people are treated because of it in your community. And so we looked forward to marriage. And as my friends and I got married, I started to hear their stories about it and their experiences. And generally they're like, oh man, honeymoon, so good. Like, you know how guys can be. They're just like, oh, they're like a little too exciting. You're like, okay, you're a little crazy, but okay, cool. Glad you're married. I'm still not married yet, but okay. And they're like, this is so good. But then over time, I started to hear different stories of some couples where they're looking forward to it and they're like, it's going to be such a good thing. But they've gotten so used to trying not to feel it and trying to pretend it doesn't exist and almost feeling ashamed of it and going, hey, if I feel anything, if I think anything, then it's so shameful that when they got married, they found they still felt that. Even though they were like, oh, now I'm supposed to do it. It's supposed to be this good thing. I feel ashamed of myself for wanting this and doing this. And there are other couples where they found that they felt a lot of pressure or obligation around it. They felt like, they're like, I want to love my spouse in this way, but also I feel pressure around this topic or maybe obligation or maybe even for many of the couples I know, it became a place where it was actually frequently a place of conflict. A lot of the hardest conflict in their relationship came up around this. So they're a little scared to engage in it because they're like, is it going to turn into a fight instead? And it's interesting because when they've done studies on the teachings of Christian culture and the impact on people's sexual lives, one of the things that stands out is this. When women believe before they are married the message that a wife is obligated to give husband her husband's sex when he wants it. Vaginismus, which is basically sexual pain, rates go up to 37%. When you believe this message that you might have even heard at church or from a Christian teacher, it can lead to more pain in sex. Barely statistically different from the effect we found of abuse is how that finishes. So sometimes what we believe, what we learn, what we go, oh, God wants me to do this, might even lead to this, a similar effect on your sexual experiences as abuse. That's crazy. And really, 
what we found, not just through people's stories that I've heard, but looking to research, is that the Christian cultural view of sexuality and so the teachings that we pick up along the way kind of make it so that, well, we follow the rules so that sex is good. Oftentimes, it feels like a very controlled, a very, not a very free experience. And sometimes it's not particularly good for us. As a teenager, as I'm learning kind of Christian cultural view, I'm also learning about the cultural view in the world around me. And the sexual expectations of the culture around me and the teachings of that. And especially as a teenager, I'm like, okay, which am I going to follow? Am I going to do this Christian thing or am I going to do what the world around me is doing? And in the world around me, there was a very different message about it. They're basically like, in our culture, often sex is kind of like, hey, it's a fun thing that adults do. It's a fun thing that adults do with whoever, wherever, whenever, as long as there's consent, which is a good thing that we have consent and get involved in that. That's important. But that was kind of the view. And when you feel controlled and sh maybe some shame and some guilt, and you're like, yeah, I can't live up to these standards, you're like, That's a, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> like, that sounds a lot easier. And so some of my friends practice that view of sexuality, those expectations. And as they shared some of their experiences, they're like, man, this is really free. This does not, like, and I even had friends leave Christianity and start practicing a different view. And they're like, this is a lot freer. And there's a lot of stuff I'm not dealing with. And it's really nice. But also as I saw them freely pursue sex in this way of whoever, whenever, wherever, as long as there's both, you both consent, they also found that there are things that didn't seem very good for them about it. They went, it seems like something that we can just do and it's just a fun activity, but then I feel, I don't know, sometimes I feel, I just don't feel good after. There's different emotions they label that with. But there was frequently, I just don't feel good after and it's really frustrating and I don't like it. And our cultural view often ignores what we even know about our physiology. Because we can say, oh, sex is whatever you make it. Sex is whatever you think of it. Like whatever you are, you're like, this could be a lifelong relationship. This could be a thing that I just do with somebody that I'm just friends with, whatever. And you tell your brain that and you're like, okay, this is what it is. We're just gonna have fun together. You go and do it. And you think that's it. But what our bodies are doing is when we engage in sexuality, our bodies actually release hormones into our system. And one of the hormones that relates into our system is dopamine. And that goes to your brain and it's like, this is really good. This is really fun. This is really fulfilling. And dopamine is great. We do all sorts of things to experience dopamine. Many of the recreational drugs people use lead to your body pumping dopamine into the, their system. And they're like, this is great. Also, if you know anybody who's like a runner and actually likes running, it's because of the dopamine. Running hurts. Running is uncomfortable, but when you go for a long run, there's a point that your body starts pumping dopamine into your system, and for some reason, even though you're in a lot of pain and miserable, you get done with the run, and you're like, that's so worth it. I don't know what's up with that, but dopamine. But the problem, and if that's all that got pumped into your system when you engaged in your sexuality, that would be great. It would be like, this is fun. This is a fun activity that some consenting adults can do together, right? But... Also, in females, 
their body pumps oxytocin into their system. And what oxytocin does is it goes to your brain and it says, this person is yours and you are theirs. And it tells you what your relationship with that person is. It's not what you're telling yourself the relationship is, it's what your body is saying, hey, when I go through this experience, I tell my brain and I wire my brain to say, this is what this relationship is. And guys, you're in the same boat because we have vasopressin that gets, this is the hormone that comes up in our brain and says, this person that you're engaging with is yours and you're theirs. And it builds this bond. And our cultural view of sexuality just kind of ignores what we know from science of this is more than just an act, a fun thing that we do together. This is something that tells our brains and wires us to build a connection, which can be a really good thing or a really bad thing. If it's with your lifelong partner, it's like, this is great. This just cements the bond that you already have relationally. But if it's with somebody that you're like, I'm not sure if I'm even going to talk to you again, of course you're going to feel weird afterwards. Of course you're not going to feel great about it afterwards. And if it's with somebody that has had their photo or video uploaded to the internet and they're thousands of miles away and that you have no relationship with them other than this, it's really going to mess you up. And so at this point I could be like, don't practice the, don't be, handle sexuality like Christians because it's kind of sort of good for us, but it's not at all a free experience. Or I could say, don't practice our culture's view of sex because it's completely free, but it's not very good for us. But this message is called Sex and Saws, and so we're going to talk about saws instead because I like to relate things that should not relate to each other. To, I like to relate them to each other. So I borrowed a saw this morning, and I don't know if you guys have ever seen a saw at church before. Any of you guys ever seen a saw, a chainsaw in a church service before? Okay. Don't worry, I'm not going to start it. I pulled the spark plug just in case anybody got crazy. Um, but I grew up in a small town of like, like people say that Mission here is a small town because we're like, I don't know, 40,000 people. I grew up in a town of under 4,000 people, but I didn't even grow up in town. I grew up outside of this small town. And so in a small town, people like chainsaws. It's just what we do. And you'll be shocked at how young of kids you'll see running a chainsaw. Like, you'll see eight, ten-year-old kids running chainsaws. And you imagine giving a chainsaw to an eight- or ten-year-old. You imagine parents giving, like, that parent, probably the dad, if we're real about gender roles, the dad giving their kid a chainsaw and just being like, hey, I got a new toy for you. Go have fun. Do whatever you want with it. Just explore, check it out, see what it does. Um, if your friends want to come over and play with it too, go for it. If you know anything about chainsaws, if you cut into anything that has metal in them, your chainsaw is not in very good shape afterwards. They're meant to cut through wood. If you give it to a kid, they're probably going to find something with a nail or a screw in it. So they're going to wreck the chainsaw, and it might kick back and hurt them. They might accidentally cut themselves or their friends. There's a lot of ways it just kind of comes down and cuts your toe. Like, 
That's not a great idea to be like, hey, here's a fun toy, just go have fun with it. Chainsaws are powerful tools and incredibly dangerous, right? But on the flip side, you're, you're a really serious parent. And so you're like, okay, I know you're only eight years old, you're only 10 years old, but I'm gonna let you use the chainsaw, but you have to memorize the entire user's manual and take a test. But you know, there's different types of user's manuals. There's ones that's that are written by like the people who made the saw, that, the people that actually know how to run it, and then there's the ones that are written by like lawyers. This is the lawyer one. And so basically the entire manual is just those red circles with like a red line through the middle of it that say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Don't start it while holding it up in the air. You have to set it down on the ground. Don't run it unless you're wearing all the, like, the mask and the helmet and the chaps and the jacket and we're going to sell those to you for a thousand bucks, you know? And so your kid memorizes the whole manual. They know all of it. They read the part at the end where basically the lawyers wrote in, look, if you do anything wrong, this thing is likely to just kind of blow up as a grenade in your hands. And if it does blow up like a grenade in your hands, that's your fault. Don't sue us. You know? And so then your kid goes out to try to run this chainsaw. And they know all the rules. And they're trying to like start it while it's on the ground because that's how you're supposed to do it, I guess. They might figure out how to get it running. They might use it. But they're probably like shaking with fear. They're probably just like, ah, and like gently just like kind of nudging a tree with it. Right? Neither of those things works very well. But imagine our kid, their grandpa, their great-grandpa is called Mr. Steel, and I'm making this part up, but they're called Mr. Steel, and they're the Mr. Steel that invented the steel chainsaw. And this Mr. Steel was actually a logger that used to cut trees by hand and would go back and forth with the saw by hand, and he got tired of that, so he invented the chainsaw, and he was a logger his whole life. And he's like, okay, okay, grandchild, I'm going to teach you how to use a saw. He's like, this thing is really powerful. It is really dangerous, but also it's really good at cutting down trees. So here's how to do it. Here's how not to pinch the blade. Here's how to not have a kick back and cut you, and let's go for it. It's going to be a totally different experience, right? If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm not talking about uh, chainsaws. just in case any kids come back up here after the service. I'm not talking about chainsaws. I'm talking about sex. Because so often, the cultural view is, hey, just have fun with it. It's just a fun activity. And then the Christian view is, it's so powerful and it's so dangerous, and don't do this, 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 and don't do this. And we're left scared, intimidated, maybe a little shameful, maybe a little guilty, maybe worried that if we do anything wrong, that God can never forgive us. It's going to just blow up in our face, which is a complete lie. Christ did not die on the cross so that God could just forgive us when we tell a lie or when we cheat on a test or when we get angry and hurt somebody with our words. Christ also died on the cross so he could forgive anything we do. So there's nothing that we can do that is going to separate us from his forgiveness if we, 
accept it. Like if we accept his forgiveness, there's nothing we can do that would separate us from his forgiveness. But what we can do is we can actually go and talk to the person that designed the saw. We can talk to the person that actually designed sexuality, that actually formed us as people with a sexual desire in us. Because as a Christians, we believe that God formed the universe into what it is now, in every way. And in the center of it, he formed humans into what we are. We talked about that a couple of weeks back in our series, What's Up With Christians and Science. But if we believe that God formed everything, we believe that God formed us. And he's probably not surprised when you go from being a kid to being a teenager and you start to feel things. He's probably like, oh yeah, that's, yep, my design's working. Okay, it's working how it's supposed to. And so he actually formed us intentionally with sexual desire. But why? Does he tell us? It turns out he does. Let's look a little bit through the Bible and see what we can learn real quick. I'm just going to say there's a lot of sermons we could preach on this. There's a lot of different details we could get into. So if you're like, Michael, you didn't touch on this detail, we can do a series on it next year. I'm sure you guys would all love squirming through that uh, and sweating and being uncomfortable, but we can go there. But this morning, we're going to look at the big picture. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 at the very beginning, like this is two chapters into the entire Bible, the very beginning, God's just formed the universe, he's just formed humans, and then right after he forms humans, what's the next thing he says after he's like, I made man, I made woman, what's the next thing he says? This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. It doesn't say sex, but if you can read between the lines, two being united into one, leaving your parents, becoming one with your spouse, you can kind of go, okay, I can fill in the blank here. And if you can't fill in the blank, the next line is, now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. So I'm pretty sure that fills in the blank. So the very beginning of the Bible, he's like, I made humans, and let me just explain one detail about humans really quick, because this is a big part of who we are. We were made with sexuality that brings us together and makes it so that two people become one. What science points to now, as we've discovered through the way that our, our bodies respond with hormones, it makes two people become one flesh. And then if you go through the whole Old Testament, there's a lot of stories about people doing things sexually, and a lot of them weren't good. But there's not a whole lot of directions on sexuality. There's one part where... God's forming the Israelite people into a nation, and he's giving them a kind of a set of political and religious and social laws all together. And so there's some laws on sexuality there. And most of those laws are basically like, don't cheat. Don't sleep with somebody that you're way too closely related to, like, you know, your mother-in-law. And even some rules on hygiene, which at the time, they didn't have modern science, so they had no idea about hygiene. But he's like, hey, here's some good hygiene. It'll help you. And then later on, there's a book in the Old Testament called The Song of Solomon, which I'm not going to make... Sometimes I've read that up on stage just to watch people squirm. But if you, don't believe, if you think that God 
doesn't think his sex is a good thing. He's like a little ashamed of having made it. Read a little bit of the book of so- the Song of Solomon, and you'll realize that God is very positive about sex. If that's in the Bible, God has something good to say about sex. But anyways, we'll move on. You get all the way through the Old Testament, through a few thousand years, and Jesus has come to earth, and the religious leaders are doing what religious leaders like to do, and they're kind of doing the legalistic lawyer thing of do's and don'ts. At this point, leading up to this, they're actually arguing over, like, are we, what exactly legally do we have to do to be able to divorce our wives? Because we just want to get out of here. So what do we have to do? Jesus, what do you think? And Jesus uh, doesn't really answer the question head on. In Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 5. And Jesus said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Sounds kind of familiar. It kind of sounds like Genesis. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. And so if you didn't read Genesis 1 and go, God intended for this to bring two people together and form them into one, when Jesus is like, here's a reminder, let me say this even clearer, God designed this to bring you together, so let's not split this apart. So underlying, if there's one big thing that God designed for our sexuality, it was for it to be at the center of a relationship that brings two people together into one. But we're humans and we have a hard time figuring out how to deal with things. And if you um, continue through the Bible, Jesus, that's most of what Jesus said about sex. But then the early followers of Jesus, the early church, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus was on earth, they're going, okay, but what about this? But what about that? And so the church leaders that had to kind of answer those questions, kind of like if you ask me, so Michael, what about this? What about what's going on in our culture? What's going on here? And so Paul, one of the leaders in the early church, uh, in a couple of his letters to the church in Ephesus and in the church in Corinth, is like, okay, I'm going to answer some questions about this for you. And there's some stuff we can learn here. There's some things we can pick up along the way. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, Paul says, The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. That sounds great, right? You guys should take care of each other. But often what we end up doing is we go, Oh, well, you should fulfill my sexual needs. And let me start listing all the things that I sexually need. And here's my appetite, and here's how often, and here's what, and here's how. And we can even weaponize this verse against our spouse, against our partner. And if you think that your sexual needs is anything you sexually desire, that's a really big ask. Because what do we sexually need? Is it whatever we have an appetite for? I think about food. I feel like I need Ben and Jerry's every night and I need bacon for breakfast every morning. But that's just my appetite speaking. That's not my needs speaking. My needs speaking is when I actually get hungry and I'm like, I need some food. And even if it's broccoli, I'll eat it because I need some food. And if the point of sex is to just have fun with another person, then your need is whatever is fun. 
And that's it. But at the point of sex is actually to bond you together in this lifelong relationship, to be this, the epitome of this deep relationship of two people becoming one, then your sexual need is going, we need to feel like we're one. We need to live and have a relationship like we're one, not like we're two separate people. And so Paul's going, guys, your spouse needs to feel like they're one with you and do what you need to do relationally and sexually to, for that to happen. Let's continue on a little bit further because this starts to get a little bit more to the heart of things. In Ephesians chapter 5, 28, Paul is speaking to the, again to the church about it. They're asking him questions. He's responding to it. He says, Husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. And this should not sound crazy. If we look at the biggest, the two greatest commandments in Christianity, the first is that you love God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength. And then the second command, the second direction that Jesus gave was love your neighbor as yourself. And then he told a story basically being like, I'm not just talking about your neighbor next door, I'm talking about every human on earth, particularly the people you don't like, are your neighbors. And you should love them as yourself. So that makes sense. You should probably love your spouse as yourself. But he gets really direct because this is in the context of sex that they're asking this. And he's like, guys, love your wife as if she's your, your own body. And I think it's fair to flip this and say, woman, love your husbands as if they're your own body. And it sounds really simple, but then we're not good at it. Because if you're engaging in sex and you're having a great experience and they're not having as great of an experience as you, if you love them as your own body, you should be really concerned about that. You should be feeling what they're feeling with them. You should be just as concerned about what they feel as what you feel if they, you love them as much as your own body. That statistic I gave at the beginning of a 42% gap in experience between the genders points to we're not loving each other in the same way. We're going, hey, I'm good if I get 90% and you get 48%. That's not loving each other. If you love somebody as if they're your own body, when they're not having as good of an experience as you, you hit pause and you say, okay, we need to figure this out. Because this isn't just about my sexual appetite. This is about our sexual need. And then the focus of this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul talking to the church in Corinth again about sex. Man, they had a lot of questions about sex. Paul says to them, you say, I'm allowed to do anything. And he's pointing to that truth that we are allowed to do anything. As humans, we are allowed to do anything by God. God says, nothing you do can stop me from making our relationship right and forgiving you if you'll let me. We can do anything. And we'll never, nothing is big enough that God would let separate us from him. But not everything is good for you. And that's why throughout scripture you see God giving some directions around sexuality. Because he's like, you can do anything, but not everything's good for you. I created this to be a good thing. It's a powerful thing though. And as the designer of it, I understand the impact it has on you. And there's some bad ideas. It's like handing your kid the saw and going, you can do anything and I will take you to the hospital if you hurt yourself. 
but not everything you do with the saw is going to be good for you necessarily. So please like wear some sort of eye protection so you don't get sawdust in your eyes. I don't know, that's a, that's a big ask for some people. Um, once you get enough sawdust in your eyes, you're like, yeah, I'll flip down my sunglasses. But you're free to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And that's, I believe, what God actually gives us guidelines around sexuality. It's not that he wants to control it. It's not that he's like that, like, oh, I want to know the details. He's like, I just want you to, to experience it as I created you to experience it, as I created it to be this great thing for you. And then continuing on, and even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. I know for a lot of us that probably hits deep. There's a lot of ways the sexuality, that's this thing that we expect to be free and good, we start to feel like we're enslaved to it. Like you remember when you started to be aware of sexuality and you're like, you, you probably were like, this seems like a good thing. I'm excited about this. And then later in your life, you start to go, I feel enslaved to shame around my sexuality. I feel enslaved to my desire, my appetite around sexuality. Maybe I feel enslaved to someone else's expectations. Maybe I feel enslaved to my partner's expectations around sexuality. And so even though it's not good for me, I need to meet their expectations. And we become enslaved to it. Maybe you find yourself wanting this good thing so badly that you'll do bad things to experience it. Whether it's hurting those that you're close to, whether it's hurting people far away from you. And this is the heart of God around sexuality where he said, I created this good thing for two to become one. For to be at that moment where you have this lifelong relationship with somebody where relationally you're becoming one. And naturally at the epitome of that, is our sexuality. It says, and you're free to do anything, but not everything that you may do with that is going to be good for you. Not everything that you do with that may be free. But God created us to experience sex as good and free. So how do we, how do we actually follow God in that? I'd say it's a relationship thing first. There's some practical how-to guides and stuff that if you need to, like you need some how-to, you can find it. But what underlies, I believe, why Christians tend to be more sexually satisfied than not, and I think that what God's heart is for it is that he created us to have relationships that are defined by selfless love and complete trust. And when we have selfless love and complete trust, then it leads to being able to have free and good sex. And oftentimes what we'll do is we'll go, hey, I'm completely trustworthy in the bedroom. And I'm, I'm so selflessly loving in the bedroom. And you, re, and you try to separate your sexuality from this deep relationship. And this relationship of two becoming one doesn't start in the bedroom. It starts with a friendship that turns into more than a friendship and eventually turns into this lifelong partnership. And if you're not completely trustworthy outside of the bedroom, that's going to affect how much they can trust you in the bedroom. If you're not entirely selflessly loving, if you're a little selfish in how you relate to somebody, 
and the rest of your relationship, when you relate to each other sexually, it's going to affect that deeply. So if we really want to honor God with our sexuality, we have relationships that nurture selfless love and complete trust. And that, we're going to see a new health. And you might be sitting here being like, hey, I'm single as a Pringle. Um, this is really unrelated to me. I'm sorry. I feel, I feel bad for you. Um, you are missing out on some good things. I've just spent like half an hour telling you about how it's such a good thing that you're missing out on and reminding you of that. I remember when I was single and hearing some messages of me like, come on, come on. But here's what I can say. Good and free starts with who you are, not the relationship you're in. Good and free starts with your character because good and free comes from being completely trustworthy and completely selflessly loving. And if you start to practice that in whatever relationships you are in, with your friends, with your family, with your coworkers, when you start to be completely trustworthy with them and completely selfless in the way that you love them, you become a person of selfless love and a person of complete trust. And then if you do find yourself in that relationship of a lifetime, you'll have the character to have the sexuality thrive in that. And then if you are married, you might have been sitting here and going, okay, okay, God's kind of tapping me on the shoulder saying, hey, look at that part of who you are right now. Look at that part of your relationship. Look at what's going on there. You might have a good sex life, but I have better for you. You might have a good relationship, but I have a better relationship for you if you'll just grow here. But if you're like, I don't know how I could grow. I don't know how I could get better in this area. I have two questions for you to ask today. Find the time today to have a conversation. Ask two questions. And the first one's fun. The first one is you say to your spouse, you're like, hey, how, what do I do in our relationship that makes you feel like I'm, I completely love you? What do I do in our relationship that makes me, you feel like I'm completely trustworthy? What makes you feel safe and loved in our relationship? And, they'll, and if they're in a relationship with you, there's probably something there that they can tell you and you'll get warm, fuzzy feelings. You're like, oh, I'm such a good person. I make you feel safe. I make you feel loved, right? And now that you feel warm and fuzzy, now follow up with the hard question. And realize it's hard to ask it, but it's also hard sometimes to be honest. So be gentle in how you ask it. But ask them, what do I do in our relationship that doesn't make you feel completely safe or completely loved? And if they have the courage to tell you, you can listen, you can go, okay, that's where God is giving me an opportunity to grow. That's where God's saying, I want you to have a better relationship, which is going to lead to some better sex for sure. That's where we can grow. Invite God and say, God, I want to grow in this in my life. Whatever this is in my life that's holding me back from being completely loving and completely trustworthy, I want to grow in that. And that's how we live out God's design for us in relationship. And it starts in our friendships. It starts in our family. It starts with the people that we work with. And it comes into really clear focus in the lifelong relationship of marriage where two people become one flesh. Not just one relationally, but one physically and sexually. And that doesn't just thrive from learning a new technique or a new idea, but it comes from growing to the people 
that make it so you feel completely safe and completely loved so you can be completely free and completely good in your sexuality together. Some of, there's an author by the name of Shayla Gregoire. And some of the stats I've even given today have come from her because she did a survey of over 20,000 Christian couples. And she went, hey, what's working and what's not? And she has some amazing insights. If some of what I touched on this morning speaks into that, feel free to grab one of the copies of the book in the lobby. But she closes with this quote. She says, passion, in this context, it's good sex, flows from the ability to be vulnerable. Passion flows from the ability to be vulnerable, which flows from the ability to trust. You can't be vulnerable until you can trust, which flows from that safe relationship. As safe relationship is defined by selfless love and complete trust. So I really believe that God calls every single one of us, regardless of what relationships we're in, to have selfless love and complete trust. And that comes to the heart of how we live out this major part of who we are sexually. Let's close up in prayer. God, it is crazy that you uh, gave us our sexuality. Um, sometimes it feels like a gift. Sometimes it feels like a curse. Sometimes we're waiting for that relationship. Sometimes we're in that relationship and we're like, why is this going wrong? I pray for each of us this morning that you would help us to see how you created us to live this out, how you created us to be people of complete trust and people of complete selfless love. I pray that the areas that you might be drawing the light that we're struggling in, that you would be so faithful to work in them and bring healing and bring trust. Let us feel your forgiveness. Let us feel your hope for us. And not feel that this is a dangerous thing that we have to just avoid getting hurt by. But it's actually a good thing you gave and said, I'm going to mature this in you. And when things go wrong, I want to heal this in you. We invite you into our lives, God. We invite you to work in our hearts and our character and the way we live our lives. In your name, amen.